All right. I have a question to start with, which is, how would you know if you trusted God or not? What I'm not talking about is whether or not you say you trust God or not. I'm asking, is there a way that you can measure if you trust God or not? Is there a tangible sort of indicator of how much or how little you might trust God? Or maybe is there some way of you being able to identify what areas in your life you'll trust God with or not? I mean, I, I've been going to church since before I can remember going to church. Right? I was, grew up a church kid, missionary kid, pastor kid, whatever, something like that. I've been singing I Surrender All all my life. And we would have gospel outreach nights and we would sing that song like 10 times through. Do you remember that, Austin, when you were a kid? I love that song. But I can think about my life and think, I've done a garbage job at fulfilling what I said I will do. All my life, I surrender all, Lord. And I've done a pretty garbage job at it. And so the question remains, how would you know if you trust God or not? Because that's what surrender's about. I didn't know, Mark, that you were going to do that song. Um, that wasn't a setup. I had no idea that he'd going to do that song. How would you know if you really trust God or not? Well, today's passage from Malachi is going to help us answer that question, I think. And quite possibly, before you go and sit down for lunch today, you may be confronted with something that you haven't really considered before. Do I actually trust God or not? And this message is not intended to be a rebuke. I can honestly say that. However, it's quite possible that this morning you may feel rebuked. And nor is this message intended to guilt trip you into a certain course of action in your life, but it is quite possible that you may feel guilty. I think our culture is deeply afraid of both of those, rebuke and guilt. They're presented usually in our society as dangerous ideas. And yet, of course... God often confronts us with our own guilt and he brings his loving rebuke to us so that we would be refined. If you were here last week in Malachi, we were talking about God's refining work in our lives. And he refines us so that we will more gloriously reflect his character in the world that we live in. And so I think that we need to come to terms with both guilt and rebuke as Christians and realise that there is a good way to be guilty and there's a good way to be rebuked. And maybe, maybe that will happen today. Because today we're going to talk about two related topics, subject matters, that again our Western culture 
struggle to publicly talk about. Because we're going to be talking about money and we're going to be talking about tithing. But really, we're actually going to be talking about trust. So let's pray. We're going to read the scriptures. So let's ask God to help us hear his voice through them. Lord Jesus, we come to you. You've already met with us this morning in powerful ways. You've reminded us through your word, but by the, the mouths of our young teenagers, you've, we've heard your testimony of, of your faithfulness. We've sung songs declaring our gratefulness to you. So Lord, now continue to be gracious towards us through your word, by your spirit, instruct us and comfort us, we pray in your name and for your sake. Amen. All right, Malachi chapter 3 is where we're up to in our series. If you're visiting with us today, we're working our way through the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament as it's presented to you in most um, English Bibles today. Malachi chapter 3 is where we're up to, and we're going to start reading from verse 6. I'm not going to read the entire passage through. We're going to go all the way down to verse 12 today, I think. But um, we're just going to take the first couple of verses and... I've already broken them up. If you were here last week, I showed you a method of breaking up passages to sort of deal with them. We're not going to go over all that again, but I have broken it up into two big groups already. Let's take the first section. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. It says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Let's leave it there for a moment. All right. You might be thinking, well, hang on, Chris. I thought you said that we were going to be talking about money and tithing. And I am. All right. Malachi is going to get to some pretty explicit instructions for us on money and tithing soon enough. We're going to get to it in the next passage. But this is actually my first point. This is my first point. You see, we too often separate our relationship with God from our everyday practical living. Those two things are often in our head, two categories that we will kind of separate in the way that we approach life. And in this case, as Malachi deals with it, how we deal with money and our tithing and our relationship with God, we, we sometimes think that those two probably have nothing much to do with each other. So here's my, my first big heading, and it's probably a heading that I could use for the entire, the entire message, but we're just going to sort of use it to get started with. Let's see if I can't offend someone. Because here's my first heading, what you won't spend your money on says a lot about what you worship. Now in the past, I probably have used a phrase similar to this where I said, what you do spend your money on, and that's true enough, but as I was considering what Malachi was saying and what God was saying to the people in Malachi's time in particular, it struck me what I choose to not spend my money on, the things that I look at and say, I'm not, I'm not spending money on that. I'm not going to put money into that. 
That tells me a lot about what I worship. As I said, it's a heading I probably could use to describe the whole big picture of what this entire passage is about. But I think that you can see in these opening verses that we just read, verse 6 and verse 7, how the foundation of God's accusation against the people of Israel is going to play out. You see, verse 6, as we read it, is directly connected back to what we spoke about last week. Um, at least in the English Standard Version, it starts with the word for. Um, in a more um, up-to-date way of sp speaking, you might say because. Because I, the Lord, do not change. Well, because what? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he was talking about last week. I wonder if any of you who were here remember the summary statement that we had. You recall it? Probably not. I'm going to put it up on the screen. God was tired of his people misrepresenting him. So he sent his messenger to prepare for his own arrival. He came to restore worship among those who knew him and to deliver true justice for every wrong done. All right, God was promising an act of justice among his people, an act of sort of severe refining work that would... Let's remember, it was pretty confronting. The refiner's fire, the fuller's soap. God was promising to strip away all the filth in the nation in order to create a community of pure worshippers. But verse 6 carries that forward with an important reminder about God's character. And here it is. Here's the reminder. My next heading. God is consistently merciful and faithfully pursues relationship. That's what we're starting to see here. God is a refiner. God is willing to do what he has to do amongst his people to create pure worshippers. And then verse 6 tells us, For I, the Lord, do not change, right? I'm consistent. I'm always on about this. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. All right, this is, this is the only lens to interpret the rest of this passage by. We can't divorce what's happening in verse 6 and 7 from what's about to happen in verse 8 and onwards. There's not a subject change there. God's not talking about one thing and then all of a sudden says, oh, by the way, I'm going to talk to you about money. Okay, it's important to keep in your head right now. So in essence, right now, God is saying, verse 6, verse 7, God is saying to his people, if I wasn't consistent with my own nature, I would have discarded you and destroyed you long ago. You certainly deserve it. That's what verse 6 and verse 7 is telling us. God's saying, hey, listen, I don't change. And because I don't change, I'm not going to destroy you. You deserve to be destroyed, is what he says to them. From the days of your father, verse 7, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Right? Israel, you deserve to be discarded. But, but I'm consistent to my nature, God says. I'm consistent to who I am. God was promising an act of justice amongst his nation. But he says, you can, you can know that I'm going to be consistently merciful towards you. And I will faithfully pursue a relationship with you. 
So even though you deserve to be discarded, he says, instead, I'm standing here with arms wide open in front of you and I'm saying, I want to embrace you. Return to me. Come back to me, he's saying. Can you see that? That, that implorement of God, right? God's saying to his people, listen, you guys turn away from me all the time, but listen, return to me. Return to me. I want relationship with you. God faithfully pursues relationship. And so that's the lens that I want you to interpret verse 8 onwards as we get to it. God's great request, God's great invitation, God's great desire I want a relationship with you. So return to me, he says. Return to me. In fact, I would say that if anyone tries to theologically deal with the subject of personal finance or giving, outside of the context or outside of the framework of a relationship with God, then I would say ignore them. Because giving in God's books is always about relationship. So here we are, God is saying, return to me. We see that in verse 7. But how do his people respond? We can see it there, we read it. They respond with a question of their own. How shall we return? God's saying, hey, listen guys, I'm, I'm persistent with you. I'm consistent in my character. I want a relationship with you guys. So return to me, return to me. And the people say, how? How do we return? I think it's a valid question. Right? How? Well, God then continues. And we're going to read from verse 8 through 12. And we have to read it as God's answer to that question. He has said, return to me. The people say, how should we return to you? And now God's going to tell them. He's going to say, this is how you can return to me. This is how you come back into relationship with me. So let's read it. Malachi 3, verse 8, and we will read all the way down to verse 12. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions... You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And we could be sitting here and just sort of, hang on, wait, what? Right? God was just talking about a relationship. God saying, return to me. And the people say, how do I return to you? And now he says, you guys are robbers. So why is God now talking about robbing him? Why is God talking about tithes and giving? Is that he's supposed to be talking about our relationship with him? And so this is where I want you to stick with me for a minute, right? 
This isn't as it first appears as you start reading it. So while God does start talking about money and about tithes, he's actually talking about trust. He's talking about trust, and here's how that works. Um, another, another important question, I don't think I've actually posted this on the statement as a question, sorry, I posted it as a statement. So let's just run with that. God does not need your money. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't need your money. If, if I'd posted it as a question, I would have sort of said, does God need our money? And the answer is no. Right? What does he want? He wants your trust. Right? Not your money. An important question to ask as we read that question is, or that passage, sorry, is really what does God need money for? Or more specifically, what does God need our money for? It's okay to think about God using other people's money, but let's be personal here for a moment. What does God want our money for? What does God want my money for, right? Well, the answer is he doesn't need that money at all. He doesn't need anyone's money. He doesn't need yours, that's for sure. And yet, we have to come to terms with the fact that he accuses the people of robbing him. And when they reply with, how have we robbed you? How have we robbed you? He specifies by saying, in your tithes and offerings. So we can't sidestep that. We can't read this through and just go, oh, well, God's not really talking about money. Well, he's actually really talking about trust, but we've got to come to terms with why is it that God so specifically accuses his people of robbing him, and when they push back against it and say, well, hang on, why would you call us robbers? Why would you call us thieves? He says, because of your tithes and your offerings. So let's try and come to terms with what's going on that. I think there's a clue as to what really is, uh, is happening here and why I say that this is about trust. And the clue rests in verses 10 and verse 11. So I want you to sort of zoom in verse 10 and verse 11 and have a closer look at that. And I think I put a slide up there. I'm going to highlight a couple of the verses that I think are important for you to either underline in your Bibles or take note of. Verse 10, when God is sort of wrapping up his accusations towards his people here, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, underline that word full. That's important. All right. Underline uh, full, because bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open a window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing, now underline, until there is no more need. Underline that. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy, underline that, the fruit of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. Underline that, says the Lord of hosts. Right? The key is in the word full. The people were giving. Absolutely they were. They were turning up to temple and they were giving. But what they were holding back is the real issue. And maybe as importantly, 
why they were holding back. God's accusation actually came down to not that they weren't giving at all, but they were holding something back. And he he implores them, bring the full tithe, the full tithe into it. So what does holding back say? Well, holding back says, I don't trust you. Holding back from God says, I don't trust you. Because these people, just like you and I, we are no different, right? They had financial needs, just like we do. These people had insecurities around how successful their livelihood would be. And in particular, for them, it was their crops. It was the the field, the harvest, the fruit on the vine. There were deep insecurities that they had. Would this be a good year for the harvest? Right? Would this be a good year? Will I make my livelihood? Will I be able to support my family? Will I be able to meet my goals? Maybe you're not a farmer. Maybe you're not growing grapes up in the Hunter Valley. You know, maybe you don't have a small crop that you're you know, providing to the farmer's market or something, but, but I'm guessing that you've got some way, some interest in earning money, a livelihood. You've got some way of being able to support your family. You've got some way to be able to provide financial needs so that you can meet the goals that you've got in your life. We're not, we're not very different to the people in Malachi's time. Right? They had financial needs, but they also had insecurities, just like we do. The people were scared. The people were unsure. And out of that place of insecurity, out of that fear... Their response seems, I think, fairly reasonable. They simply made financially responsible decisions to ensure that they looked after their interests. And so, what's the problem with that? The problem was where they took their money from. The problem was where they propped up their financial securities Where where was that pot of money coming from? The problem was that they held back from God to secure their interests. And holding back says to God, I don't think that you can look after me. I don't trust you. Now I want to make something really clear about these verses for a moment. This is not anything to do with sort of um, what has been commonly come to know in recent times as a prosperity doctrine or a prosperity gospel. I want to make an important distinction in these verses here because these verses in Malachi chapter 3, particularly verses 10 and verse 11, um, they are often quoted, often quoted by preachers and churches who are, let me say very clearly, both deluding themselves and actively deluding other people with a message that says, give more to God and he will give more to you. Or, God wants you to be wealthy. In fact, wealth is a sign of God's blessing in your life. And messages like that and dozens of others which say the same thing in more subtle ways 
are complete and utter garbage. They are poisonous to your faith. Preachers of this prosperity gospel, which is absolutely no good news at all, it's not gospel at all, preachers who preach that type of message are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false teachers. And they will one day stand before the great shepherd and they will face the full wrath for devouring his sheep. If you hear someone preaching a message like that, stay away from them. Turn it off. Have nothing to do with them. This is not a prosperity gospel proof text. But if they aren't that, then what are they? How do we come to terms with what God is saying when he says, hey, listen, you just test me. I'm going to open up the gates of heaven, the windows of heaven. I'm going to pour out blessings on you. It sounds good, right? Well, this is what God is saying. He's saying, don't hold back. I will never let you down. Don't hold back. I will never let you down. Because do you remember the question that God is answering? It goes back to the beginning of the passage that we looked at. Do you remember the question that God is answering? He said to the people, return to me. I want a relationship with you. I'm consistent. You can trust me. Return to me. And they said, what did they say? How? How do we return to you? How should we do that? To which God says, trust me with everything. I will not let you down. Trust me with everything. Try me. Just try me. You'll see how consistent I am. You'll see how good I am. Just try me. You can trust me. That's God's message to the people in Malachi's time. And let me say to you very plainly, that's God's message to you today. It's certainly been God's message to me as I've been preparing and thinking about this and just feeling the challenge of God. Saying, Chris... How much do you trust me? Oh, Jesus, I trust you. Really? How much do you trust me? I will never let you down. Now, of course, this is going to come with some practical considerations, and if I haven't offended you already, I might be about to. (laughs) What does that mean for us? Because we can see, I hope you can see that God's really talking about trust here. But we can't divorce trust from our finance. And I know that we live in an age and a time in Australia, Western society. Kath and I were just chatting about this last night. We're talking together and just went, as soon as we start talking about finances and money, it becomes a really, like, you sort of feel the walls go up a little bit. You're like, hey, money and finances, that's a really personal thing, Chris. And we don't even like to... If you ever say to someone, hey, how's your job? Yeah, great. Can you imagine sort of the social social eyebrows that raise when you say, how much do you earn? (laughs) What was your pay packet last week? What do you get after tax? And people start going, oh, that's that's very personal. It's like asking a woman her weight. Like you don't... (laughs) Or when she's due. Like you never ask that. You never ask that, right? Men... If you haven't ever heard that before, give me a little healthy tip. 
Don't ever ask a lady, well, when are you due? Right? Never do that. All right? Same thing about comes to like sort of when you say, what, what do you earn? People start getting really antsy about it. But I'm going to just go out on a limb here and we're going to talk about some practical things for a moment. Um, I went to the Australian census results, the most recent ones, done in 2021. So we've, we're three, three years or so down the track from that. And things have changed a little bit, you'll see. But this is the most recent census d- data and we've gone for a median weekly income for Raymond Terrace. I looked up Raymond Terrace, just the township of Raymond Terrace. So if you live in Madawi, the numbers are a little bit different. Even if you live in Heatherbrae, the numbers are a little bit different. But the township of Raymond Terrace, the median weekly income for an entire household in Raymond Terrace in 2021 was $1,297 per week. Now, just in case statistics is a long-distance memory to you and median is like, isn't that the thing that divides the lanes on the highway? Let me just explain median for a moment. If we got every single household in Raymond Terrace and we were able to line them up from that side of the stage to this side of the stage, with that side of the stage being the highest income, the house with the highest income, and all the way on that side of the stage, on that far side, was the house with the lowest income, then the median is the one that is dead smack in the middle, all right? If you earn, if your household earned $1,297, then there are just as many people in Raymond Terrace who earn more than you as there are people in Raymond Terrace that earn less than you. You got that? Now, maybe you, your household didn't earn $1,297. You're thinking, what? That's an awful amount of money. All right? Maybe you can just sort of use that as a gauge to say, well, where would I sit? Would I be in the lower half of that or would I be in the upper half? The figure doesn't really matter. It's just having a standard to work off this morning. Let's work off the median, $1,297 per week. One way that I have done tithing over the years, full disclosure, is this. And talking to a lot of people, I think I'm not alone. This is how I've often approached tithing. I call it tithing the leftover. I start with $1,297. From that figure, you're going to deduct your mortgage or your rent. And I looked up that as well. Do you remember? In in 2021, the median, again, the middle number, that people paid mortgage in Raymond Terrace was $350 a week on mortgage, that was the median. And the rent, the median rent was 325. Good luck finding a place in Raymond Terrace to rent for $325 at all now. That wasn't that long ago, but that was the middle, that was the median. So I've split the difference and I've just said, from your $1,297, we're gonna deduct $340 to pay for either your mortgage or your rent, all right? So let's deduct that, the total goes down. Now we've got 900 and $57 left in our weekly bank account. Let's take out a tank of fuel, 120 bucks. And that's if you've just got one car in your family. I've got two cars in my family, so I'd probably have to double that. How many cars do you have in your family? Maybe you've got to double it, triple it, I don't know. But let's just be really kind and say that we're only gonna spend $120 a week in fuel. 
Now we've got $837 left. Now we do the groceries. This will tell you how often I do the groceries. I said $250 and Kath laughed. <laughs> she said, what grocery store do you go to? I'm going to that one, all right? It depends on the size of your family, I guess. But let's say $250 a week in groceries. Now we've got $587 left. But Taylor Swift is in town, right? And so I look up, and I did this, I, not because I was any interest in going, but I looked up and thought, how much was a Taylor Swift concert ticket? And I just about fell off my chair. The cheapest I could find was about the $200 mark. All right? So Taylor Swift is in town, so I'm going to buy a ticket because I think she's the bomb, and $200 a ticket, and now we're down to $337 left of our weekly income. Power bill needs paying. I've got the latest iPhone that I'm paying off, plus my data package, my internet, and all of a sudden, what have I got left? I haven't even started thinking about savings. I haven't started thinking about any of the other things that are going on, like my water bill that's coming in next week. And I start thinking, man, I'm running a bit short this week. I don't, I don't know if I'm in a position to tithe. Or if I do, I'm going to tithe off the $200 that I've got left. I might put 20 bucks in the bag this week. You see what I've done? I've tithed the leftover. I've, I've looked at my life and my financial needs and I've said, I don't know if I can trust God with this. I don't know if, if God can handle all the real, very real needs that you face every week. And so I'll make sure that I make wise financial decisions in looking after my own personal security and then with what's left over, I'm going to be really generous and say, God, you can have that. And God's saying, return to me. And you say, how do I return? And he says, trust me. I will never let you down. Just trust me. I will never let you down. And so I want to offer a suggestion for you to consider. And it's trusting God with the first slice. It's, it's simply trusting God with the first slice. So what about trying this next week? The tithe on $1,297, now let me just put in a little quick disclaimer here. You've heard me talking about tithe. It's simply a word that means 10%. All right, that's what the word tithe means. It means 10%. And before any of you come up to me afterwards while I'm having a cup of tea and just go, Chris, the New Testament doesn't talk about tithes like that. And I'm just going to go, 100%. No, that's what I mean, 100%. He wants everything, all right? <laughs> um, now, I'll say I completely agree with you. The... the the, the New Testament preaching, we don't have time to go into this this morning, but just to let you off the hook, nowhere in the New Testament are you seeing anyone stipulating and saying, sit down, 10%'s the figure. Because if we were going to use 10%, $1,297, move the decimal point backwards one place, and you're going to get $129.70. That's the, the really strict tithe of the median income each week for a household. All right? $129.70. <laughs> So the New Testament principle isn't set to a 10% rule. Right? Really, in summary, it's, it's a, a figure that you, before the Lord, predetermine in your heart 
and it's based on generosity and it's based on need. That's the summary of New Testament preaching on giving in the church, all right? A predetermined figure, not 10% necessarily. I once had a conversation with someone over a cup of coffee, they're asking about giving and tithing and all those sorts of things, and I was talking about 10%, and they said, well, I don't give 10% because I don't want to be legalistic. And I went, super, that's good, I'm glad. But why is it that every time someone tells me that they don't want to be legalistic, the figure that they pick is always less than 10%? You can, be, you can prove that you are not legalistic by giving 15, if you like, or 20, or 25. You can, you can use any figures that you like above 10, and you're going to prove I'm not legalistic about 10%. But we often use five, yeah, or four, or two, or something like that. I don't know why. But what about giving God the first bit? And, and when God was talking to Malachi, he was talking about 10%. Minimum, actually, if you want to go through and do a bit more study on what the Old Testament people were expected to give. 10% is where they start. goes up from there. But, but even if we just use 10%, why don't you use that as a, as a bit of a, um, a test? God says it right here. He says, test me. Test me and you'll, you'll see how, how faithful I am. So why don't you put God to the test? It's about the only place in the Bible that you'll see God inviting you to put him to the test. Usually he says, don't test me. (laughs) Right? But here God is actually inviting you to test him. So why don't you take him up on it? Why don't you sit down this afternoon if you can, or maybe on Monday, sit down and think about what is your household income? Actually put a figure to it. If you really want to test God, think about pre-tax, not after-tax. Maybe. But put God to the test. Sit down, look at what is my household income. And then move the decimal point one place and come up with a figure of what 10% of that is. And then prayerfully and boldly say, God, I trust you. I trust you for the other 90. I'm going to give you that. Now, let me be clear. I asked Mark, Mark, please do not put the offering after my sermon this morning. (laughs) All right? Just in case you are starting to think, man, the, the bank balance must be getting a bit low at church. It's always low. All right? I... I would, maybe Tim will shudder in a moment, I don't really actually care if you don't give it into our bag. That's not what I'm talking about. I am saying, set aside 10% this week, coming week. If you get paid fortnightly, do that for a fortnight or a month, whatever it is for you, but set aside 10% and just say, I'm going to give this to you, God, and find some way of giving it to him. Could be here, could be in a ministry that you're supporting, could be something else. Give it to God though, right? Give it to God. And then say, the 90% that's left God, I trust you with that. I trust you that you can meet my need. I trust that I can pay my mortgage. I trust that I can feed my family because I know that you will never let me down. That's who you are, God. And so when God is saying, return to me, and you're saying, how do I return to you? God's saying, put your money where your mouth is. That's what he's saying to us this morning. Will you trust me with everything? Now, the question I asked at the beginning of the day was, 
How will you know if you can trust God? There's lots of ways, lots of ways to answer that and lots of ways to answer that correctly. But the way that Malachi instructs us to answer that this morning is, do I trust God with the first slice? And will I trust him with the rest? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you meet us in our need. Thank you that you are consistent, that you faithfully pursue us in relationship. Thank you that we do not need to be worried about tomorrow. We look at the way that you clothe the birds in the fields, the way that you make the flowers bloom, and we can see that you are faithful and you are good. Help us to trust you with our needs as well. Lord, give us the courage to put you to the test. You will not let us down. And we love you. Amen.